This is a Federal News Network podcast. They say an army travels on its stomach. It also travels on spare parts. And in that regard, the Defense Department's got a problem. The inspector general has found that one spare parts supplier, a company called Transdime, received payments that resulted in nearly $21 million in excess profits. For more, we turn to the general counsel at the Project on Government Oversight, Scott Amy. Scott, good to have you back. Oh, good morning. Thank you. Just review the specifics here about this case, because the numbers are pretty startling. Certainly. Well, in this case, you have Transdime, which is a spare parts aerospace spare parts provider, and they've been on the kind of at the tip of the spear for the Department of Defense IG for quite a few years in the fact that some of their profit margins on some of their spare parts are extremely high. We're talking in the 500%, 1,000%, even up to the nearly 4,000% higher than what it costs to actually manufacture these parts. And so there's been some questions about Transdime's business model because they come in and a lot of times buy up smaller providers that have unique contracts with the Department of Defense to supply these spare parts. And then immediately the price of these parts increases. And so there's some real questions about Transdime's business model. And then these reports actually raise a lot of questions about why the Department of Defense keeps turning to them and paying these outrageous prices. And so I think it's kind of a perfect storm here that you want to point a finger at the contractor, but then you also need to point a finger at the Department of Defense on why do you keep entering bad deals? Yes. And that idea of profit margin, doesn't it vary depending on the price and the part? For example, if it costs you a hundredth of a cent to make a pin, but you sell the pin for a penny because you have distribution and packaging and mailing costs, then that might be a thousand percent increase, but from a hundredth of a cent to a cent. Whereas if you cost you a million dollars to make a part and you sell it for 1.2 million, then you're only 20 percent. Certainly. I've never really worried about profit margin as much because we've seen some bad deals where there was only a 5% profit margin in comparison to some other offer where there was maybe a 30% profit margin. And when you look at it, especially fixed prices, they might have just shuffled prices around. And so profit doesn't mean that much to me, but with these profit margins, they are extremely high. And the company will say, well, we charge these not only for the reasons you just stated, but also because in a lot of these instances, we haven't produced these parts in a very long time. We have to relearn how to produce them. We have to re-engineer our machinery to produce these parts. And that takes time and money and resources. And that's why we're so high. But there's got to be a way for the Department of Defense to figure this out, to come to a better solution that ensures that we're not paying such high prices. And especially because these are sole source contracts. And that's part of the other thing is, you know, the Department of Defense in a lot of instances says they don't have other places to go. And the claim is that these are commercial products. So at that point, all these things create a perfect storm where the government contracting officer isn't getting really good data in that it can analyze whether the prices that it agrees to are fair and reasonable. And until the government gets access to that data, the government's going to keep buying, you know, pin the tail on the donkey, blind with a blindfold on. And it would be like in the consumer market that you're going in and you're buying a car without a sticker price, or you're not really seeing prices on, how would you like it if you didn't see prices on Amazon or eBay or Walmart or any other places on the internet? You don't get to see prices. And then those vendors come back to you and say, well, go other places and see what you can find and determine whether our our unnamed price is kind of fair and reasonable. And so it's really putting the, the government in a really bad position as a buyer. 
We're speaking with Scott Amy. He's general counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. And when they produce and plan and buy weapons platforms and so forth, there's always the life cycle costing that goes into the military planning. And that takes into account the cost of replacing engines down the line. But we're talking about mundane types of nuts and bolts sort of parts. Is that the issue here? Oh, certainly. That's exactly what the issue is. And for many years, everybody's been worried about spare parts. In, in the old days, Pogo made its living off of spare parts. And that was the coffee pot, the toilet seats and the hammer. I mean, the government and especially the Department of Defense have never been really good buyers of these. You're absolutely right. It's screws, it's bolts and nuts and all different things that go into these with huge markups and, you know, much higher. And especially with them labeled as commercial as some of these, you can go into a hardware store and buy and you're like, well, why are we buying this screw or not? that costs five cents over at the local hardware store or at the box store? And then why is the federal government spending $80 on it? Yes, I recall many years ago someone I knew that owned an airplane and it needed piston rings. He said I could go and buy the same piston ring for my car and it would be 10 bucks, But because it has an FAA stamp on it, the same piston ring is 100 bucks because it's going in an airplane and presumably maybe it meets different specs. But if that's not the case, where is the Defense Logistics Agency and some of the oversight structures like the Defense Contract Audit Agency and so forth that presumably look at these kinds of things routinely? Well, they should. And I think a lot of these, pardon the pun, but a lot of these spare parts fly under the radar. <laughs> um, they're, they're small procurements. Um, they're for a small quantity. And so that's actually how trans I mean, it's just not trans I mean, we've seen spare parts horror stories and IG reports that date back, you know, 20, 30 years even in the most recent report that the IG did about Transdyne, they talk about other reports that are 23 years old in which the Department of Defense didn't do a very good job. But it's also the access to information. And so the federal government doesn't have the best access. Like they have a list of things that the contracting officer should do to check off to try to determine whether the prices and costs are fair and reasonable. Well, guess what last on the list is? Like eighth or ninth down on the list is ask the contractor for price or costing data. And so a lot of times the contractor isn't providing that information to the government. The government is having to do market research, previous prices paid. They're having to look at other vendors and what they provide these goods or services to the government for. So the last thing is, now, if we were consumers and you had to do all this other pricing data without, you know, going right to the direct vendor and saying, okay, how much do these shoes cost? You know, we would never do it. And so it really does put the government in a bad situation. And so the government doesn't have the best information when it buys these products or services. Now, Transdime, if you watch the hearing a few weeks ago, they'll say, but these are our commercial prices and we're even giving the federal government and the Department of Defense a discount. But the question is, you know, can we buy more in bulk? Can we merge these together? If you know that you're going to need this order over the next two or three years, instead of buying it 30 quantities of 13 or 15, can we buy 100 of them because you know you're going to sit on them and the other thing I think is the federal government needs to find a way to, you know, get out of these sole source deals and have some kind of multiple award procurement that there are other vendors that we can turn to to produce these spare parts and try to get them cheaper and allow competition to take over. I mean, there's a lot of key terms here that sound really good for the taxpayer. It's commercial. Market forces are driving it. You got a discount. But at the end of the day, the IG's report from I think it was about three years ago showed that Transdime overcharged or had excessive profits about $16 million. And this one comes out, the most recent report from December comes out and says the number was closer to $21 million and are asking for refunds. Now, three years ago, Transdime provided a refund of that money. It'll be interesting to see if they 
followed that path and provide a 21 or $20.8 million refund today, you know, we're in a situation where contractors are taking advantage of systems. I mean, we have systems where this data doesn't have to be provided to the government. These contracts are under thresholds where certified cost or pricing data needs to be turned over, where that's where you really can get in and see exactly. They've certified what this actually costs. The government can see that and we can buy smarter. Unfortunately, these are mostly under that radar and we're not seeing that type of information. So the government is really kind of buying with a question mark behind it. Because often you can find similar looking things that might be made in China or Thailand or Vietnam, and they're not really the same grade. Is it fair to say that at least with Transdime, there is accountability for the quality and provenance of the part? Certainly. And there's been a big effort even with the Trump administration and now with the Biden administration to buy American. So I don't have a problem with that. We just need more people at the table to make sure that we're getting fair and reasonable prices. Because if Transdime is saying, well, we're giving you a discount and this is a discount off of our market rate that we're selling to Boeing and Lockheed and Airbus and the other aerospace contractors out there, that sounds like we're getting a really decent deal. But at the end of the day, we're still overpaying on a lot of these things and we need to come to a better solution. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe then there must be some link between the supply base for these parts and some SBA program somewhere that helps get startups going for technical and manufacturing industries. Startups. And I think there's a call. There was a lot of talk, especially by the DOD procurement official during the hearing about reverse engineering some of these parts. Is there a way we can reverse engineer it and You know, there's all kinds of questions about proprietariness of these spare parts and the data rights of these spare parts. And, you know, you end up in a legal jungle on who owns what here. But at the end of the day, are there other ways that we can produce these? I mean, a few years ago, I believe the Department of Defense was looking at buying a toilet seat cover again, and it was going to cost an outrageous amount of money. I forget what the total was, but it was tens of thousands of dollars. And they were able to reverse engineer it. I think they 3D printed it for like pennies on the dollar. And so at the end of the day, you know, the government came up with a better solution. And so I think that's what we need to do in these instances as well. Scott Amy is general counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Tom. You have a great day. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision? What are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit? And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.